Are vampires secretly Marxists? Would Lenin join the Sabbat? What would Gramsci have to say about the Camarilla? Coming up on Social Science Fiction. You're listening to Social Science Fiction, a podcast that blends political science and nerd culture, examining the politics of science fiction and fantasy. Hey there, today we're talking about the politics of vampires, specifically the vampires of Vampire the Masquerade. Vampire the Masquerade, if you've never heard of it, is a fairly popular tabletop role-playing game developed in the 90s that was used for an around-the-table role-playing game experience like Dungeons & Dragons, and was also the basis for some of the most intense LARPing I have ever seen. For the record, I did not participate in said LARPing. I'm not that much of a nerd yet, but I have watched videos of it, and the Vampire the Masquerade LARPing is intense. So this tabletop RPG from the 90s also spawned two PC role-playing games in the 2000s, Vampire the Masquerade Redemption and Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines, which remains one of my favorite PC games of all time and one of my top flawed gems out there despite all the bugs and weird stuff and it remains a phenomenal pc role-playing game if you're into that kind of thing but anyway this role-playing game gave us these two pc games and it's currently experiencing something of a revival a few years ago a new edition of the rules was released that kind of marked a reboot of the whole series and it's currently the basis of yet another pc and now just video game in general role-playing game being developed by Hardsuit Labs. This game being titled Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines 2. So, this is what we're talking about. Now, I've never, unfortunately, gotten to play the tabletop game or took part in any of the LARPing, but I've played the PC game. I've been eagerly following news on the development of the new game, and I've always been really into the lore of the series. I'm just a sucker for good backstory and lore in my video games and role-playing games. And the background of vampires of the series, it was always really cool and always very political. So if you've never played the games, if you're unfamiliar with the series, the background background here is vampires are real and they're all descended from the biblical Cain. That is the Cain of Cain and Abel. Within Vampire the Masquerade the story is, in the biblical story, Cain kills his brother Abel and he's cursed by God. And Vampire the Masquerade posits that this curse by God is vampirism. He is cursed to be a vampire and has to live forever with the guilt of what he's done. And so the story goes, Cain kills Abel, he becomes the first vampire, and he becomes the first generation of vampires. Cain will create a couple more vampires. These will become the second generation of vampires, and these couple of vampires will go on to create, sire, a third generation of vampires. And this third generation of vampires will be kind of the most important in terms of the lore arguably, in the politics of vampires going forward. So this this third generation of vampires called the Antediluvians, Antediluvian meaning before the flood, the reference meaning that these are vampires that are so old they existed before the biblical flood that Noah escapes in his ark. These vampires will go on to sire a whole bunch of vampires. And each of these vampires from the third generation has their own unique powers and traits that they end up passing on to their descendants. And so if you're a descendant of one of these specific 
original third generation vampires, then you're going to have special traits related to it. And that gives us the clans that will follow. So we get now fourth and fifth and sixth generation vampires up to 12 and 13 in the modern world. And all of these fourth and fifth up, up to 13th generation and so on vampires, they're all descended from one of these third generation vampires and they carry certain traits of them. So that's the basic idea. When you jump into the game, when you create a character, you're going to most likely create a character who's a vampire, probably one of those higher generations, a 12th or 13th generation vampire, and you're going to select a clan. And the idea is your clan is kind of like your race and class in Dungeons and Dragons. So rather than being an elf sorcerer, you're a 13th generation Malkavian one of the clans. And so the idea is these clans come with different powers that kind of represent the powers that were inherited from the founder of your clan. And basically, the higher your generation number, the weaker you are. So a 10th generation vampire isn't going to have as much power as a 5th generation vampire. The idea is the earlier your generation, the closer you are to the original vampire Kane. As generations go on, kind of the vampiric blood gets diluted, you lose a little bit of the power. It's a cool idea that as time goes on, vampires are becoming less powerful and the older ones are always going to be more powerful. It was also always kind of cool from an RPG mechanics perspective. In role-playing games, if you're the game master, you always want to be able to have NPCs who are just more powerful than the party because you don't want the players to just go and kill everybody. So you need characters that are more powerful than them to tell them what to do sometimes. And Vampire the Masquerade kind of gives us a built-in system for that. All the characters are going to be probably 12th and 13th generation vampires and you can just say, oh, this guy's uh, seventh generation. He's just more powerful than you. So it was always an interesting way to keep the players in line. You can always find someone more powerful to scare them, basically. So that's the basic idea of where the vampires come from, how you set up your character. And kind of the overarching plot of the entire series is the idea that these ancient vampires, these third generation vampires who existed thousands of years ago before Noah's flood and everything and survived through all of that, are secretly controlling the vampiric world today. The idea is these vampires, at least the ones that are still around, are so old and ancient, they've gone into this deep slumber where they're not out walking in the world anymore. They're probably in coffins underground somewhere. But through their vampiric powers, through their blood, they're able to, to some degree, control all the other vampires that are descended from them. So if you're part of a certain vampire clan, your original third generation vampire might subtly influence you, even in his sleep, through your blood. And so the idea of the series is that there's an ongoing struggle between all these third generation vampires that are engaged in this sometimes called the eternal struggle, sometimes called the jihad. That's jihad spelled J-Y-H-A-D, a term I suspect the developers of the game used in the 90s because they thought it just sounded cool and knew it had something to do with conflict and largely the developers and writers of the game have tried to drop that word. I recently went and tried to check out their website and all the materials and I, can, I can't find any references to that term. So if you see the word jihad with a Y, you're probably reading older materials. I think they're trying not to use that anymore. But anyway, the idea is this eternal struggle is all the ancient vampires kind of feuding with one another, trying to fight for power. We don't really know what's going on or what their long-term goal is, but all of the stuff that's going on in the modern vampiric world is all these vampires, whether they know it or not, being pawns of these ancient vampires. That's the idea. And so, jump into this game, you create a character, you pick a clan, you pick a generation, and the other thing I always loved about this series, the clans, they all represent 
different classic vampire tropes, a different version of the vampire we've gotten in fiction over time. So you have the gangrel clan who are very animalistic. They represent kind of the vampire as this animalistic force of nature and they can transform into wolves and stuff and commune with nature and so on. So representing that vampire trope, you have the Toreador clan, which represent vampires as the sensual, seductive creatures. They're the ones that are more in tune with humanity and they like going to to parties and they're very sexy and so on. So representing more of that trope of vampires, what we get more from Bram Stoker's Dracula. You have the Ventru clan, which are the vampires as the powerful and charismatic figures who just desire power and to rule over people. You have the Nosferatu who are these horribly disfigured monsters. If you get turned into a Nosferatu, your whole body becomes this horribly gross, scabbed, falling apart thing. You look like a monster representing vampires as just monsters, just horrible, grotesque, scary monsters. And a whole bunch of others. So each clan kind of represents its own trope. So you choose a clan, you choose your generation, and you start playing the game, engaging in this eternal struggle, and your game master will tell you what you're doing, and you're always secretly wondering, is everything I'm doing just part of some scheme by some ancient vampire that I know nothing about? It's fun. If you're into that kind of thing, if you're into intrigue and secret political agendas and so on, it's a lot of fun. And getting into the politics of this, the last piece of this is when you create a character, you're also probably going to choose a sect. So beyond the clans, which is you're bitten by a vampire of that clan, you become a vampire of that clan, you can also freely choose which sect you want to belong to. And sects can encompass vampires from multiple clans. And these sects are basically political organizations. And there are three primary sects in the Vampire the Masquerade universe. You have the Camarilla, the Sabbat, and the Anarchs. So the Camarilla are the largest, most stable political organization, and they're interested essentially in maintaining the status quo, maintaining the power of their organization, and most importantly, they're interested in upholding the titular masquerade. And the idea of the masquerade is vampires have generally accepted the idea that they have to hide their existence from the rest of the world. The thinking is, you know, if all the humans find out vampires and other supernatural things exist, then the humans will use their superior numbers and their technology to wipe us all out. So we got to keep this a secret. And that's the masquerade. We have to blend into society, stay in the shadows, not let the humans get wise to us. And the Camarilla, that's what they're interested in upholding the masquerade. So in any place where the Camarilla are powerful, any city where the Camarilla are kind of in charge, they will have laws in place to uphold the masquerade. And if you're in a Camarilla city and you violate the masquerade, if you do crazy vampire things in public in front of humans, they're probably going to send other vampires after you to kill you. That's the Camarilla. And interestingly enough, while the Vampire the Masquerade series pretty much officially establishes in the lore all that background I told you about Cain and the Antediluvians and the Eternal Struggle and so on, one is real. Within the setting, the Camarilla continue to deny any of that is true. The Camarilla as a sect, they say, yeah, all that stuff about ancient vampires secretly controlling us and all that craziness, that's fake. If there were such vampires, they're long gone. So they try to deny all of that even exists. Now, the Sabbat 
are generally cast as the villains of this setting. They reject the Camarilla and its order. They're more interested in violence and destruction. They have no problem killing people, and they generally don't have a problem violating the masquerade, doing crazy stuff in front of humans. And in contrast to the Camarilla, the Sabbat are very focused on the idea of the ancient vampires and the eternal struggle. The Sabbat kind of make it their mission to find these ancient vampires and kill them before they wake up and wipe everybody out. So while you got the Camarilla saying, none of this is real, just we just want order and stability, you got the Sabbat saying, no, all this is real and we've got to escape it. We want to break out of this eternal struggle and kill all these ancient vampires who gave birth to all of us. Now, finally, you got the Anarchs. They're generally cast as kind of the good-natured rebels, the hotheads, the rebels without a cause or sometimes with a cause. They're the guys that reject the Camarilla without going all the way full Sabbat. The Anarchs oppose Camarilla authority. They'll say the Camarilla have no right to tell us what to do. They generally don't like the status quo. They hate the idea that within the Camarilla in general, you have the older, higher generation or older, lower generation vampires telling everybody else what to do. And if you're a newer vampire, you basically just get told what to do and you're fed into the meat grinder and you're just a pawn for somebody else. They reject all that. They promote some degree of equality among all vampires. Well, at the same time, recognizing that the masquerade is a good thing. So they'll say the Camarilla suck. They tell us what to do. They, you know, it's just the elites at the top, these fifth and sixth generation vampires telling all us other vampires what to do. And that sucks. But yeah, the masquerade is a good thing. We don't want the humans to catch on. We want to keep a secret, but we don't need the Camarilla doing that for us. And so the Anarchs, they kind of rebel against the status quo while at the same time, not openly promoting violence unless they think it's necessary. And throughout the lore of the setting, they're often willing to cooperate to some degree with the Camarilla. You know, they don't always get along, but for the most part, as long as the Camarilla doesn't bother them too much, they're willing to work with them to some degree. And as for the whole thing about the ancients and the possibility that the ancient vampires will rise and bring the end of the world, they kind of adopt an attitude of everybody can decide for themselves. You know, we're not going to impose one belief system on you or another. Just figure it out for yourself, whatever you want to believe. So that's the setting. And like I said, I love it. It's a lot of fun. If you're interested in vampires and politics, there's a lot of it. From what I can tell, you know, if you're playing a good game with a good GM, you can have all kinds of political intrigue as you try to figure out what is this clan up to in this city and the leader of this city? Is he secretly plotting something? Is there going to be a coup? There's all kinds of fun stuff you can do and all kinds of lore and dark stuff. It's a lot of fun. And as I've been thinking about this lore lately, and I've been rereading a lot of stuff because I'm getting excited for the new game that's coming out, I started thinking a lot of this stuff seems to fit within Marxist ideology. And I thought, let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about what Marx would have to say about the politics of Vampire the Masquerade. Because I figured last time I talked about Harry Potter and libertarians, so now I figure I'll go completely the other way and talk about Marxists and communists and make sure I piss off absolutely everybody who might be listening to this show, no matter what your politics are. So, let's talk about Marxism and vampires. By the way, standard disclaimer still apply. I'm not saying this game is secretly Marxist. I'm not saying the right Writers and creators are Marxists or that you have to be a Marxist to enjoy this game. I'm not promoting one ideology over another. I just think it's fun to examine this from this particular perspective in this circumstance. So let's talk about Marxism and vampires. So first of all, what is Marxism? Marxism is a political and economic theory that posits that all politics throughout the history of the world is about class struggle, economic class struggle, developed by Karl Marx. Marxism argues that 
Throughout time, all political systems have been about two classes kind of warring with one another. In medieval Europe, it was the wealthy, landowning nobles against the peasants who had nothing. And those were the two classes. And the political system was established by the nobles to maintain their power and to keep the peasants down. That was the idea. And eventually, the peasants are able to organize and gain some wealth through themselves, through engaging in free market capitalism. And so the peasants revolt, they overthrow this old feudal system and give birth to this new political economic system, which is democracy and capitalism. And now this gives birth to new classes. The bourgeoisie, the wealthy factory owners, the people who own the land, the factories, the machinery, the means of production, Marx called it. And the other class is the proletariat, the working class, the workers who have to work in the factories. And so this is the new political struggle. Now it's a struggle between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. And the bourgeoisie have used their power to create a political system that favors them and keeps the new lower class in line. And so democracy and capitalism and talk of freedom are lies. Democracy isn't for real because the workers really don't have any control over their lives. Capitalism and the idea of economic freedom is a lie because if you don't have any money or wealth, you really can't get anything. You really can't gain anything or advance in this system. You don't really have any freedom. So that's the core of Marx's ideology. Throughout time, there have been various class struggles going back to feudalism, landowners versus peasants, going back even further to older systems. And basically every time we reach a breaking point, the oppressed class rises up, overthrows their masters, creates a new system where they're going to be on top, but this creates a new lower class and the whole cycle repeats itself. The peasants overthrow the nobles and create capitalism, bourgeoisie versus proletariat. And Marx argues in his writings, we're approaching the end of all that. Marx's argument is that this capitalist system is kind of the last system we're going to live through. What's going to happen is eventually this capitalist system is going to get so broken that it's going to collapse. The wealth is going to get concentrated in fewer and fewer individuals. The bourgeoisie is going to shrink as some lose their wealth, get beat out, you know, in competition with other wealthy people. The proletariat is going to grow larger and larger and their living conditions are going to become worse and worse until eventually there are so many poor workers in their conditions are so horrible that they're going to realize we don't have to take this anymore. They're going to revolt. They're going to overthrow the remaining bourgeoisie and it's going to happen one place and then another and another. It's going to spread around the world. His famous phrase, workers of the world unite. And so they're going to overthrow these systems and they're going to take control of all the states around the world. And once they have control, they're going to seize control of the means of production. They're going to take over the land, the factories, and create a new socialist society. Socialism being a system where the government owns the means of production, the land, the factories, and so on. And the government is going to run the economy and redistribute everything and create equality. And then once equality has been created, once wealth has been redistributed and everybody's equal, eventually the state will no longer be necessary. There'll be no more economic classes. The state will wither away and will be left with a communist society a society where there is no state because there's no differences in power. There are no economic classes. Everybody is equal. Everybody works. Everybody shares in the wealth from each according to his ability to each according to his need. That's the Marxist theory. So what would Marx have to say about the vampires and vampire politics in Vampire the Masquerade? I think he'd say that his theories fit pretty well in this setting. I think he would say what we are seeing is a classic class struggle. The difference is for vampires, 
vampires, it's not money that defines your class, it's vampiric power. These generations represent competing classes within the vampire world. March would say, clearly, vampiric politics is a class struggle between the third and fourth and fifth generation vampires against the ninth and tenth and eleventh and twelfth and thirteenth generation vampires. And if you are one of those lower generation vampires, you have the power, you have the wealth, and you are going to create a political system that favors you and exploits the lower classes, the higher generations. This is a Marxist struggle of lower class vampires against higher class vampires. And clearly, the lower generation vampires, the, in terms of vampiric power, wealthy vampires, have created this whole system as a means to benefit themselves and exploit everyone else. These third generation vampires created more vampires that had less power than them. And they created more vampires to exploit. And so on and so on. It's kind of just a big pyramid scheme with higher vampires using the system to exploit everyone else. And the Camarilla, I think Marx would say, is the organization that really exists to protect the system. The Camarilla is kind of the capitalist state for vampires, right? This is the political system that's been set up to uphold and defend the status quo. The Camarilla are the organization that says, yeah, we want this status quo in place. If you are a lower generation vampire, you do have a right to rule all these other vampires. And you can find all kinds of little elements in here that really uphold this. The fact that that the Camarilla go so far as to deny the ancient vampires even exist would kind of fit within this Marxist setting. I think what the Camarilla is doing is preventing all these other vampires from realizing that they're kind of pawns in this horrible system. The Italian communist Antonio Gramsci wrote a lot about the idea of class consciousness, the idea that the workers of the world won't unite in revolt until they develop a consciousness of their class, until they realize they are part of a common class that's being exploited by the wealthy and they won't join a revolt until they catch on to that. And Gramsci wrote about how the capitalist states of the world were using their power to prevent the proletariat, the workers from realizing that. Gramsci referred to this as cultural hegemony. The idea that the capitalist states create and support a culture that denies the very idea of class struggle. And so if you're a worker and you grow up in one of these states, you're kind of indoctrinated into a culture that says, no, there's no class struggle. If you work hard, you can achieve, and there's no different classes and so on. That was Gramsci's addition to Marxism. And I think Gramsci would jump in here and say, yeah, Marx, you're right. And look at what these older vampires are doing. They've created a culture. They've created an ideology that says there are no ancient vampires. You're not secretly a pawn. You're not being controlled by ancient vampires. Gramsci would say the Camarilla exists to foster a cultural hegemony, promote a way of thinking that prevents the higher generation, weaker vampires from realizing we are pawns of these ancient vampires. We are being exploited. Prevent them from catching on and realizing maybe we should unite and rebel against them. Very, very Marxist. Now, at this point, you might be saying, but Steve, aren't these ancient vampires fighting with each other? Isn't that the whole point of this? It's not one class against another. Isn't the secret war this ancient vampire versus this ancient vampire, and they're using the other vampires as pawns? And at this point, Lenin... That's Vladimir Ilyich Julianov, not Beatles Lenin. Marxist Lenin would jump in and say, well, hey, us Marxists have an explanation for this too. As World War I was breaking out, as all these capitalist states were going to war with each other, Lenin said, this fits with Marxism. As capitalism becomes more and more broken, we should expect 
to see more wars between capitalist states. Because while the capitalists all are united and wanting to keep the workers down, the capitalists also know that there's limited wealth to go around. And as the system breaks down, they're going to be fighting over scarcer and scarcer resources. And they're going to realize, you know, if we don't defeat our rival capitalists, we might go broke and end up in the proletariat. So Lenin's argument for World War I was it was about capitalism and colonialism. Lenin argued essentially all these capitalist states in Europe were trying to gobble up as much territory, as much land, as many resources as possible. And that's what prompted colonialism in Africa as the Europeans started taking land, taking the resources of Africa. And this prompted competition between all these states as the Germans and the French and the English all realized there's only so much land in Africa to go around. And if we don't grab more of it, we might lose out. And so this competition is what prompted conflict between Europe. Marxism doesn't mean class struggle is always going to be wealthy versus worker. It also means as the pie shrinks, you're going to want to grab more for yourself and you're going to go to war with these other capitalists and you're going to use your workers and exploit them to go to war. And that was Lenin's explanation for World War One. It was capitalist states fighting each other over a shrinking amount of resources to make sure they continue to be part of the wealthy bourgeoisie. And I think Lenin would say, this is what's happening in the vampiric world. These ancient vampires, they want to exploit the younger vampires, but they're also concerned that the other ancient vampires might usurp their power, and then they're done for. This, arguably, is what's happening. You have the ancient vampires all in agreement that we want to keep this system going, we want to continue to exploit our younger descendants, but we know there can probably only be a few of us holding on to power in the end, so we're also going to be going to war with each other. So, Lenin would say, the wars between these ancient vampires is just a sign that the system is crumbling, that the ancient vampires know they can't hold on to power forever and they're going to try to snatch power from their ancient peers while they can. I think Lenin would also jump in here and say he has an explanation for all these middle generation vampires. You might point out that there's not really just two classes in this whole struggle. You have the ancient vampires and you have the younger 12th and 13th generation vampires. You've also got a whole bunch of vampires in between and don't they have some power? Lenin would call this the vampire labor aristocracy. Again, Lenin would point to colonialism and the era of World War I and say, as the wealth of the bourgeoisie increased in Europe, the wealthy realized our workers are going to revolt against us unless we can keep them at least a little bit happy. And that's what prompted colonialism. The Europeans going to Africa, snatching resources, and bringing back some of those resources to give a little bit to their working class and creating what Lenin called the labor aristocracy. So you had the wealthy in Europe. Europe running things, and you also had their working class that they were oppressing, but they were also using the exploitation of Africa to keep their workers at least a little bit happy. So if you were a poor working class person in England, obviously your circumstances were better than if you were a poor working class person in the Congo. And that was the labor aristocracy, Lenin's explanation for why the workers of Europe hadn't revolted yet. The wealthy and powerful in Europe were taking from Africa and giving a little bit to their workers at home to keep them happy enough that they wouldn't revolt. And that was the labor aristocracy. And Lenin would say, that's what your sixth and seventh generation vampires are. They are the labor aristocracy. They are the vampires who the elites, the ancients, have given enough power to that they stay happy and help them continue to exploit the even younger, weaker vampires. And until things get so bad that even these fourth and fifth generation vampires realize they're getting a raw deal, they're going to continue to serve the elites and won't step out of line. So between Lenin and Marx and Gramsci, I think we've got a good 
good explanation for what's going on in the vampire world. It's just class exploitation. It's the elite vampires exploiting everybody else through their vampire aristocracy, the middle generation vampires, and through these ongoing struggles and through the cultural hegemony of saying none of this is for real. These stories of ancient vampires are a myth. So that's the Camarilla, the capitalist state of the vampire world. So where do the Sabbat and Anarchs fit into all this? They represent probably the beginnings of Marxist revolution. The Sabbat, I think, Marx and Gramsci would say, are the group that have truly recognized what's going on and have achieved class consciousness. The Sabbat are the ones that are saying, no, the ancients are definitely for real. They are definitely exploiting us. They've achieved class consciousness. They've recognized we are part of an exploited class. As younger generation vampires, we are being used as pawns by the wealthy to maintain their wealth, their status, their power. And we have to unite and rebel against that. They are class conscious. Unfortunately for their members, the Sabbat also represent all of the worst atrocities that emerged from communist regimes. Think Soviet Union, think Maoist China, think the Khmer Rouge of Cambodia. The Sabbat have kind of achieved Marx's class consciousness, but they've also become kind of Stalinist in nature. They embrace the use of extreme violence to achieve their goals. They mistreat their own members. The people at the top in the Sabbat also tend to exploit their younger members and kind of recreate the same exploitation and hierarchy that they claim to fight against. And the Sabbat also seem to reflect the infighting that was common among communists of the Soviet Union in the Stalinist and post-Stalinist era, where you have Sabbat leaders constantly stabbing each other in the back and small rebellions as some ambitious young Sabbat vampire tries to usurp his leadership and take power. And this is what we often saw in the Soviet Union. After Stalin dies, you have infighting as various factions and leaders try to take power and ultimately Khrushchev comes to power only to be supplanted and replaced by Brezhnev. So the Sabbat kind of represent all of the worst impulses, all of the worst atrocities to come out of communism. Interestingly enough, though, while being very Stalinist in their authoritarianism, in their use of violence, they kind of break with the Stalinist philosophy in taking a very international view of their political agenda. Stalin, famous for developing his ideology of socialism in one country, the idea that we can make socialism work just in the Soviet Union, whereas previous Marxists had believed that communism, the communist revolution, had to be an international thing. It had to happen everywhere or it wouldn't work. Stalin, once he had power in the Soviet Union, basically said, no, we're good here. You know, we can make this work in the Soviet Union. We're going to be interested in the rest of the world, but we're going to focus on building things up in the Soviet Union first. And this is where he broke with people like Trotsky, so the Sabbat, very Stalinist, up until the point where they say, no, we don't want to focus just on one city, just on the places where we have power. We want to spread our ideology around the world. So here, they end up being more Trotskyist. Meanwhile, I've been thinking about this. I don't know what the Anarchs are. I can't pin them down. Are they anarcho-syndicalists? Are they anarcho-communists? Are they 99 percenters? It's hard to say, and it seems to vary across factions and members within the movement. If you're into the lore, what you can see is the Anarchs in Los Angeles are different than the Anarchs in Austin, Texas, who are different than the Anarchs in Tokyo, and so on. And perhaps this can kind of be seen as representing another common critique of communists, which is their tendency to factionalize, 
to break into various competing factions and it's hard to pin down what they believe because there's always so many different groups arguing amongst themselves about exactly what they believe. So maybe that's the Anarchs. They are the more mainstream communists who, while agreeing on the basics of their ideology, also can't seem to agree amongst themselves about what they want to achieve or how they're going to achieve it. And so they end up broken up into various little factions along the way. So I guess that's the best explanation I can give for the Anarchs. Regardless of what the Anarchs are or how all this fits, what would Marx say about this system as a whole and where it's going? Marx would likely say this system is headed for destruction. It has to. Just as capitalism can't sustain itself forever, it will create the seeds of its own destruction. The vampiric system is eventually going to create its own destruction as it deteriorates over time because it just simply can't sustain itself. Marx would point to the Thin Bloods as a sign that this system is falling apart. So within Vampire the Masquerade, there's a, another type of vampire called Thin Blood. And these are vampires that are going to be probably of like the 14th or 15th generation. And the idea is they are so far removed from Cain, so far removed from the original vampire that they almost aren't vampires anymore. The blood is so diluted, hence thin blood, that they're sort of vampires, but they don't really have much vampiric power anymore. They can't exactly do a lot of things. Some of them can even go out in daylight without bursting into flames. And I think Marx would point to this and say, see, this is a sign that this pyramid scheme can't last forever. You ancient vampires, you've sustained yourself by creating a labor aristocracy. Tell the vampires you're exploiting, well, don't worry, you can create a new generation of vampires that you can exploit. And it goes on and on. But we're eventually coming to the end of this. We're reaching a point where the blood is so diluted, the newer vampires are so weak, so removed from power, that they're almost not vampires anymore. And they're not going to be satisfied with their lot in life. And so they're not going to allow themselves to be exploited. And that labor aristocracy isn't going to have vampires to exploit anymore. And they're going to go from exploiter to exploited, and they're going to start to think about rebelling. I think that's what Marx would say is coming. Eventually, the have-nots are going to grow larger and larger until they vastly outnumber the haves. And once they achieve that class consciousness, and maybe the Sabbat will play a role in speeding that along, they're going to rebel, and the ancient vampires are done. So, could the upcoming Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines 2 feature a vampire Lenin seeking to lead all the Thin Bloods and all the younger vampires in a revolution against the Camarilla and Antediluvians, ushering in a new era of vampire peace inequality? Almost certainly not. That wouldn't be fun. It all ends in peace and harmony and equality. That's probably not going to happen, but it'd be fun to think about. And I guess I'll just leave off with some final thoughts on vampires in general. I'd love to do more shows about vampires and different vampires and vampires in different settings because they're so much fun to talk about. And I think they're fun in part because they're so malleable. They can represent so many different things. And I'm hardly the first to point this out, but it bears repeating. Vampires always seem to be reimagined to represent the fears or the dark desires of whatever society is imagining them. It seems like most of the earliest vampire myths that developed in earlier societies really reflected fears of death in the supernatural. The most ancient vampire myths we have usually seem to portray vampires as demons or reanimated corpses, all reflecting the fears of ancient peoples who saw the supernatural around every corner and feared death as something they couldn't understand and assumed supernatural forces had to be at work in death in the world around us. And so those vampires at that time reflected those fears. And 
as the world has progressed, we've seen vampires change to reflect new fears. Vampires later come to reflect fear of disease. We've seen more recent vampire fiction treat vampirism as a disease that is spread through blood, through biting, reflecting, I think, society realizing that the supernatural isn't working in the world, but disease, death is still with us. And so vampires coming to reflect those fears. I suspect Bram Stoker's Dracula, this very sexualized, very sensual vampire who seduces women kind of reflects the sexual repression of Victorian era England, reflects the dark desires of a society that really is uncomfortable with sex and sexuality and sexual urges and so creates a monster that embraces those aspects of life. I grew up in the 90s when pretty much all vampires seem to wear black trench coats and listen to uh, techno music. I'm looking at you, original Blade movie. And perhaps this reflects a 90s fear of youth culture and the Generation X counterculture and the fear that these weird kids are dressing all in black and wearing trench coats and what's that all about? And maybe vampires of that era embracing those things just reflect society's fear of youth and counterculture. And actually, as I'm saying this, I'm realizing in that movie, it is a younger vampire who embraces all this counterculture stuff who ends up trying to kill off all the older vampires and then kill all the humans as well. I think that's the plot line. So yeah, there, there's very much a youth rebelling against the old thing in there. So anyway, the vampire tends to represent whatever our society at the time is dealing with, what we fear or maybe what we secretly desire. So it kind of makes sense that today, given economic insecurity, debate about socialism versus capitalism, the era of the 99%, Occupy Wall Street, all this stuff, we see a vampire fiction that kind of fits very well within an ideology that deals with economic class and economic exploitation. It fits very well with a lot of what we're debating today. And so that's it, I guess. Did I completely misinterpret all of this? Are there any Vampire the Masquerade experts out there who are going to tell me I completely botched the lore and forgot to mention this important person or this important event? Is there another way of interpreting all of this? If you were a vampire in this setting, would you be a Marxist? Would you be joining the Sabbat or the Anarchs? Or would you join up with the Camarilla and say, no, we need this system in place? Tell me what you think. See you next week. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. As always, sound off on social media, let me know what I'm getting right, what I'm getting wrong, suggestions for future topics I should cover. As always, you can reach me on Twitter at Social Sci-Fi Show, on Facebook at Social Science Fiction Podcast, on Instagram at social underscore sci underscore fi, and email me at socialsciencefictionshow at gmail.com. Thank you. New episode coming next Tuesday.